Hello, brave listener, and welcome to Sound On Film, your dainty fest city home for all the latest film reviews and greatest film news south of the Ohio River. On today's episode, I visit with Joshua Overbay, the director and story writer for the film As It Is In Heaven. It's going to be a short show, but it's going to be really good, I promise. But you can be the judge of that. This is Sound On Film. month left till the day he said he would come for us they're not ready only you can do it speak lord speak lord this is the word first from edward and then from the lord he knocked i let him in Do you think we should tell David? He's the one who called this past. He won't save those who disobey, who hold on to their pride. Joshua Overbay is the director of 18 film projects. Mr. Overbay currently is a professor of film at the Louisiana State University, but has a substantial Kentucky connection from his years as a film professor at Asbury University. He visits us today at Sound On Film to talk about his first feature film, As It Is In Heaven, which he directed and which he helped to write along with Jenny Lee, his wife. As It Is In Heaven tells the story of a religious sect which sees its prophet die and a young man succeed him one month before the sect believes the world will be coming to an end. The film stars Chris Nelson, Luke Beavers, Abby Von Andel, Jen Park, Shannon Baker, and John Lena. It was photographed by Isaac Pletcher and produced by Nathaniel Glass and Michael Grout. Joshua, thank you so much for joining us today on Sound on Film. How are you doing? I'm doing great. great. Thanks so much. Okay. Uh, how was is, how is that introduction? Did I get everything right? Yeah, yeah. Sounds great. Okay. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So, Joshua, based on the production notes from the film, it seemed like making the film As It Is in Heaven was a really uh, a big passion project for everybody involved. I guess the first place I'd like to start is, can you tell us where the idea from the film came from and a little bit about what it took to get the movie into the theater? Yeah, I mean, that's a, <laughs> it was a very long road. It, it really started from failure. Um, and, uh, and what I mean by that is there was another project that Isaac Pletcher, who is also my business partner, he and I have been working on for just over two years. We would you know, written about 25 drafts of a script, and we had some people attached, and you know, we just couldn't get the financing. And I think that's one struggle that a lot of professors, a lot of people don't discuss while you're in film school, is the dilemma of being you know, in your early 30s or late 20s and not, having, you know, not coming from an upper-class background and sort of expecting to be able to make a feature from there. I mean, so our our movie was low budget, relatively speaking. I mean, it was about 900000 but we just couldn't get any financing. I mean, regardless of the short films we'd done, we just didn't have the track record, and we couldn't get attachments until we had the money. It was a catch-22. So it's kind of out of that space that I started to rethink my first feature film, and I started to think about how I could do something with no money. And and I knew that if I do something with no money, I've got to be able to shoot it almost exclusively on one location. And then I knew it would have to be a very personal project for me. And you know, given my background and fundamentalism and Pentecostalism and, and my own sort of, you know, kind of deep concern for faith, and I was going through a faith crisis at the time. So all that kind of converged, and through those set of restrictions came the idea of, of making a movie about a religious doomsday cult 
but but trying to come at it from a very sympathetic human perspective. Yeah, that, that's a really good jumping off point, I think, because the, and my next question is, before your current job where you're working at a, a public school, you spent some time at, I, I guess it's, it's fair to call Asbury uh, Evangelical University? Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, it's very evangelical. Okay, good. And that's and it's in Kentucky. I struggle with how to define the, the, the connection between fundamentalism and doomsday cults and, and evangelicalism and all that, how that all fits together. But I'm curious, you spoke a little bit about your background. How important was it for the religious aspect of this film to be true to form? Dude, it was so huge. I One of my biggest frustrations is I, is I often feel like there's just collective failure. In the faith-based genre, which I think is now a legit drama, it has a lot of conventions, strong audience, faith-based genre, all the way to more traditional dramas, I feel like when, especially ceremony or ritual comes on screen. It's just false to me. And I feel like there are just a handful of movies, The Apostle by Robert Duvall being one that was able to really capture what at least my childhood experience of religion was. And so it was a very, very crucial part for me. I thought even if the script sucks, even if the characterizations don't work and the editing falls apart and our camera breaks, I was like, I've got to get this part right. So it was really crucial, you know, and I wanted I wanted to do my best to sort of recreate what I had seen as a child and even up through my adolescence and college years. Yeah, that was, I thought, a really interesting touch of the film was I think that a lot of times if you if you see a film that's going to touch on fundamentalism, they're all going to be singing these really old-timey hymns, which there's plenty of that in this film. But then there's also some contemporary worship music strewn throughout the film that they're often singing, which I thought was a really interesting and, and humane touch in that, you know, if you go to any of these places with any of these kind of fundamentalist cults, they're not always just singing or, or you know, practicing these these faith rituals that are from the 19th century, there's still a lot of the, the stuff that's marked evangelicalism or 20th century faith. Sure. Yeah. And, I, you know, that's an interesting touch. And I thought that was, as somebody with also a, a faith background, that was an interesting way to, to kind of look at it. Oh, uh, thank you. Yeah, uh, you're welcome. And, and I guess the, the writing of this film, you talked about how you wanted to be true to form and, and how the, the film aspects or excuse me, the faith aspects are are super important to it. Talk a little bit about how some of these characters came to be and how your background kind of connects with, with some of these people that are that are in this film. Well, you know, I think for me, I always, in, in a way, saw myself as David, at least in terms of his character arc. You know, I felt like I wanted to create, you know, knowing what I'm capable of and also knowing what I've seen people do in the name of God, and not just in the name of God, but I mean, you know, I've just had a lot of close family members and people surrounding my family who have done some really crazy stuff and created a great deal of damage because they sincerely, wholeheartedly believe God wanted them to do something. And I've seen that myself. And in so many ways, for me, you know, getting David to a point of recognizing that this thing, which he's placed so much security in, that it, it could have just been, you know, a false foundation and that he could have been wrong about the entire thing, that was what I was feeling at the time that I made the movie. So in terms of his character arc, I always wanted to get him to that point. Regarding his behavior and some of the dynamics of the cult, you know, I, I really borrowed a lot from what I had read in, in terms of how the Branch Davidian works, in terms of how it operated, in terms of Koresh's arc. 
there was a similar it, dynamic between Koresh and uh, the actual son of the female cult leader at, at in Waco, yeah. and similar sort of vie for power. And so I thought that was interesting. There's a cult leader called Michael Treveser, who had a, actually a smaller cult than the one in, as it is in heaven, and he prophesied that the end of the world was going to have happen at a specific date. And, of course, it didn't, and he quickly spun things around and said, you know, we had a spiritual rapture, and almost all of those individuals remained in the cult. So, you know, I was really borrowing from, you know, I was trying to find a, a space, like a juxtaposition where I could borrow from other cultural phenomena, you know, like other, other cults, but also infuse that with what I thought was more my own experience of religion. And I think coming at it from that angle, you know, I feel like I was really using the cult thing simply as a shell to talk about how I think belief functions more broadly. Absolutely. Um, yeah, before we leave this topic, uh, I was kind of—I'm kind of curious to to hear your opinion about. Well, I, I'm sure if you're like any of the other people I've ever talked to who have made a movie, every single thing that comes out about it, uh, you're, you're going to read and, and consume and absorb. Uh, right. <laughs> uh, so I'm, I'm kind of curious to know, you know, given that not all film critics have as nuanced a view of faith and Christianity and, and religious practice as, as you might, do you, do you feel like people are kind of getting what you were trying to get at with the film? And if not, before people go in to see it, what what is kind of a, a way to look at it that you wish people had before they saw the film? Well, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I, I tell my students that the difference between a filmmaker and artist is artists get mission statements to help contextualize the experience. And filmmakers don't get that privilege. So, you know, I expect there to be subjectivity. I expect people to get things differently. But I've actually been pleasantly surprised by both the, the Christian uh, audience, like people like Alyssa Wilkinson and Jeff Overstreet, Christian film critics who have really embraced the film and understood what I was trying to do. But then also, I hate to use the word secular, but just for the conversation, you know, secular critics who have understood it as well. Now, one of my favorite criticisms about the movie was actually the writer from The Village Voice. He said, ultimately, that my attempt was admirable, but but I was too even-handed. And I thought, you know, I am totally comfortable (laughs) with that criticism. That's like the best criticism I could get. So it's actually been a real, you know, a huge surprise in terms of how on the whole, it's been embraced and and people have responded to it. But you know, now it's playing at the Kentucky Theater here in Lexington, and there's you know, there's a mix. I mean, it's a it's a tough film. It's not an elevating piece. It's built to be a conversation starter. And for those who, I, I guess the one you know, sort of, if I could tell an audience member anything, this is the type of film that is you know, it's built so that. When you leave, you'll be thinking about it, and you'll end up in a conversation about it. But it's not built to, to like most movies, to sort of stop when the credits roll. It's built to continue, I, and that's what I hope that I was able to do. So, yeah. This but is, if you're looking for a pick me up, you don't want to go see this movie. It's, <laughs> it's, that's really funny. The my last movie I saw with my mother, I think after this, she said she would never go see movies with anymore. Was uh, I took her on Christmas Day to go see The Wolf of Wall Street, which she said was. All the, right. Yeah, she said it was the worst movie she ever saw, but she didn't shut up about it for about two weeks. So I said, Was it really yeah, the worst exactly. movie you ever saw? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, kind of that's a, a. great. That's a great story. Yeah. I love that. 
kind of the opposite uh, type of film, maybe, but uh, kind of the same sure. sort, sort, of, sort of outcome. Uh, okay, so I was I was really struck by some of the performances in this film, um, and especially the way that, that Chris Nelson, who plays David, worked with Luke Beavers, who plays Eamon. Yeah, you know they're kind yeah. of they're competi- competitive throughout the whole film. And and I went through you know IMDb and everything looking for these actors, and I, it looked like most of the people in this film, you know, hadn't worked too extensively in the past. And so right. I guess the the question I have is like, are you are you just like that good a director? Uh, and how did, <laughs> so how did you come up with that uh, with this cast, and and what was it like working with these people? And you know, just kind of where did you where did you find these these really talented individuals? I mean, a lot of them. Uh, let me. I'll, I'll put Chris to the side for a second. Everyone that besides Chris, they were all cast locally. So they were people who come from either the Lexington, quite a few actors from Louisville, some folks from Cincinnati, Nashville, and even Chicago. And, and most of them we met at our at our big casting event that we had in Louisville. So really, it was about for me working with them being attentive to their strengths and their weaknesses and allowing that to kind of redesign and reshape the character. Particularly, uh, you know, John Lena, who plays the, the prophet, Edward. Edward originally was drafted very differently, as, as much more kind of a traditional hellfire brimstone. But when I met John, you know, he has this gentle, welcoming, inviting quality and I, my wife and I were like, let's just redesign this character to fit him, and then it serves as a great foil for David. And that came out of just John's general disposition, you know, and I knew that would be a better space for him. So, you know, you try to work within that, but then also we did rehearse as much as we could before, and everyone went out to the farm a week before we went, and we sort of practiced these worship scenes, and some people had no idea what Pentecostalism looked like, and they went to Pentecostal services before we started shooting. But but I think the big thing that happened is when, when no one's working for pay, like everyone's in it simply for the, the sort of joy of doing it and the kind of hope that maybe something of value could come out of it, it creates a real—the group really synthesized and and, and became something larger than its parts. And, uh, and I think because of that, people just, a lot of people completely committed themselves to the roles and stretched themselves in ways that I don't think maybe they have before. And that was beautiful to watch. And then Chris Nelson is actually a guy I knew from film school who uh, was in the acting program. And uh, he was in a couple of my short films. And he was like number one on my list. You know, I just knew like he's an incredible actor. No one really knows who he is. He's this undiscovered talent, but he is the only person I really know that has the capacity and the range to pull off such a complex character. And man, you know, he he exceeded my expectation. Yeah, he he was he was a revelation. I really thought that everybody in this film did a really great job of of pulling this. It seemed very genuine the whole thing, which I think is a really big credit. I, we've done we we've talked to some people uh, on this show who who've made some smaller films, and the the stuff we usually tell them is more around the space of. Uh, you know, you really got the best you could out of these actors. But uh, this was more along the lines of this. They really did a good job. And, and you really it, it all really came together and seemed really great. Um, well, thank you. That, that means a lot. Yeah. Uh, just to talk about uh, one other thing regarding this, and that's kind of the, the female characters a little bit. 
And you know, I, I know the Bechdel test is is kind of flawed, and and I don't know if you right, 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 know right. about it or, or care too much about it. And you know, this this isn't one that would necessarily pass that 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 barometer. Uh, but I, you know, this is a film about religion and and more conservative religious themes, and and those are kind of male centric. And I was just kind of curious to to hear your take on, you know, wh- why are the the women more silent in this film than they could have been? You know, I I mean, I think. Mostly just because of my the the influences I was drawing from specifically and and watching how typically men rose to these positions of power and, and often uh, were able to subdue and suppress the women and so really a lot of that was just because of my commitment to what I thought was realistic given the space you know my wife and I struggled with that and I think ultimately that was. The thing that pushed us to make the choices that we did. Yeah, I will say that I walked away with. I'm be, being very curious about more of the story behind those people. I thought that both Jim Park and Abby uh, von Endel, yeah. yeah, they they were yeah. both they both had a very big screen presence uh, and and left That's me cool. kind of curious about about what was going on with them and kind of what they were thinking. Uh, yeah, their backgrounds, et cetera. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and obviously you're you're thinking that at the end, but uh, you're thinking that about a lot of things at the end, which is what we were talking about at the beginning of this interview. Well, one other, a couple of other things. One of the things that I thought was the most impressive uh, about this was really just the quality of the B roll on this film. Oh, cool. Yeah, and <laughs> yeah, and I think one of the things that suffers the the most quickly. Uh, with, with you know, you mentioned this being a more of a, a lower budget, or I don't even you know how how big it was. But anyways, the the first thing that it's, suffers, it's low. Yeah, it's like I mean, we were below. I can say we were below fifty thousand. Yeah, well, I mean, especially well with something, that. especially with something that that low budget. The one of the very first things that suffers is the ambiance and kind of the mise en scene of how how things are fitting together there. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you come from a, a film, you're a film professor and, you know, you teach about these things. And I, I understand that, you know, you're going to care to do that as a high quality as you possibly can, which is probably something that other amateur filmmakers or people that are getting their start don't really realize. Uh, how important was it for you to get that right? It was huge, you know, and a lot of it was my, the guy I collaborate with Isaac and I, you know, we had worked together in film school and, you know, we made a short together that ended up finishing like in the top nine for the Student Academy Awards and we didn't have any money, you know, so we were used to tricking the viewer and making it look like we had more money than we did. And there's something about that challenge, you know, uh, working within your limitations and embracing them. And I think that's what we tried to do. You know, we never tried to shoot in an area or even create a script that would reveal our budget. And so everything we thought about was how can we make it seem like we have $5 million. But there was just a commitment to quality. I mean, I'm really obsessed with, with camera movement. I'm, I'm obsessed with why the camera moves and why different directors move it for different reasons and different styles. So, you know, I, Isaac Fletcher and I, we had a we had sort of a, a camera narrative in terms of the camera is going to move during this time, and and here's why it's going to move, and this is when it's going to stop, and uh, and we sort of we you know I did like a narrative map, almost like a graph of of the story, but you know manifesting it visually through how the camera moves. So, you know, I mean, I, I love that stuff, man. I love I love sort of someone telling me 
you can't do it and you can't make it look this good and and me being like screw you i can and and here's how we'll do it so and we got really lucky like canon stepped in this was huge canon stepped in at the last minute and decided to loan us the canon c300 as like a as like a test it was like we were one of the first projects out there period maybe one of the first features to shoot on the c300 and so that was another huge huge unexpected blessing and that kind of happened i think that happened three weeks before production wow that that's yeah. a, that's a that's really a, that's I mean that's a that's a really impressive thing to have happen and I'm really yeah. I'm, that's that, I'm really glad that you said that about camera movement one of the very <laughs> there's a funny story about me which is not who we're talking about but that's okay I'll tell you the story sure anyway. no 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 yeah one of the very first things I ever went to which I had a Q and A with the director and it was this thing that Sundance had put on in Nashville and I went I went down and I was like oh gosh I got to ask a question and I got to make it a really good one and and <laughs> it was uh, this movie about about Bigfoot or you know like. I don't, it was a strange movie, anyways. And I, I developed this this theory in the middle of the film about the character of the camera and how the camera was kind of acting as the main character of the film. Uh, and I, I thought I was really onto something. And I asked the the director uh, about about that after it was over, and he just was like, "No, that that wasn't it at all. You're you're way off." <laughs> so, so I always get really worried about to ask about like camera movement and, and characters is, or cameras. No, I love characters. talking about that. Yeah, yeah. I, I do too. And that's that's really great to hear to hear you say that. So I guess thank you so much for joining us. I have one other question, uh, and I kind of wanna, sure. wanted to ask you about the process uh, about after you finish the film. Yeah, you know, and and what which is more work? I guess is it getting the film ready to show and doing all the work that goes into uh, making the film, or, or working to get it kind of shown places and having to to talk to random guys on podcasts and that kind of stuff. Uh, and do you think this process is is uh, healthy and good? Uh, can it be improved? And and if so, like, how, what what do you think we could do to improve that whole uh, that whole process? I don't, I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm still learning. I I think the big thing is, I mean, it's all it's all work, and but it's like the best, most enjoyable kind of work, and it and it doesn't stop once it's finished. I won't say that post is harder than principal photography and i won't say that you know getting it distributed is necessarily more difficult i mean you know for me it was always a test of commitment kind of along the way like a test of endurance so you know you get your sundance rejection letter and then uh you respond and you know my response to that was well screw it you know i'm gonna I mean, you know, it was lazy of me to think that my film is somehow going to get into a big festival and then get scooped up and everything's going to sort of work itself out. I need to really think about how we can do this ourselves. And that's when I just decided to contact every single individual I ever met involved in the film industry, or at least who claimed to be, and say, hey, do you want to watch this? And eventually I connected with the right person and he became our publicist and helped us get into the theaters. So, you know, you just got to keep, keep, keep pushing, but also realize we got lucky. But the funny thing about that story, just a testament to endurance, is I made that connection. The, the, the failed project that we made at the beginning, this, this horror script that I actually still really want to do, uh, we cut a trailer for it. We shot a trailer on 16 millimeter. And I made this connection because he saw it online and was really interested in it. So ultimately, (laughs) it did, that project ultimately kind of paid and will pave the way for us to get into like a limited release. Thank you so much for 
for talking to us. That's a really interesting story, and and this is just a really really good film. And and like I said, it, thanks, it, man. It, Thank it, you. It, it shows in Louisville starting on August first, and it runs through August seventh. So uh, yeah, yeah, definitely. If if you're out there and listening, go out and see it. It's worth it, I promise. And thank you so much, Josh, for joining us. Good luck in Louisiana and Kentucky. We'll certainly miss you. Thanks so much. This right. is great. Yeah, thank you so much. That's all for this week's episode of Sound on Film. Find more about the topics discussed in this episode via our show notes located at wfpl.org. Reach out via Facebook and Twitter, where you'll find us as Sound on Film WFPL. And please email me with any comments or questions, as well as topic or interview ideas at film at WFPL.org. As always, special thanks to house band Discount Guns. I'm your host, Chris Ritter. This is Sound on Film, signing off. So in love with